welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. During the free speech demonstrations of the 1960s, Berkeley's campus was the epicenter. A French cultural studies student named Alice Waters was on the front lines both protesting and cooking for the radicals. Studying abroad in France, Alice had an epiphany and she became a new kind of missionary, pioneering organic, locally grown food for all. After becoming a Montessori teacher in London, which prioritized a very hands-on approach to learning, Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse in Berkeley in 1971. Alice and Chez Panisse literally revolutionized how we eat and how we think about food in America and beyond. Without Alice, it's unlikely we'd even be eating salad for lunch today. Alice has always only served food that's in season from organic farmers that pay their workers a decent living wage. Chez Panisse has evolved from a restaurant into a community and from a community into a movement. Alice helped give rise to the farmer's market and community-supported agricultural movements and hasn't shopped in a conventional grocery store in more than 30 years. In 1995, she worked with the Martin Luther King Jr. Public Middle School in Berkeley to create an edible schoolyard where kids would grow their own food and prepare their own meals and in the process be transformed. That same year, she persuaded President Bill Clinton to establish an organic garden at the White House, which decades later, Michelle Obama, under the gentle but persistent advocacy of Alice Waters, expanded into a national campaign. Today, there's more than 7,000 edible schoolyard projects around the world. Although Alice Waters is deeply rooted in the slow food movement, she is far from slowing down in her campaign to provide every child in our country with nutritious, organic, beautiful, and free school lunches that are intimately connected to how they learn. I sit down with Alice in her garden in Berkeley and start by asking how she's coping with these difficult times. It is a difficult time, but it's a time that we're kind of opened up uh, and aware of where we live and how we live and where does our food come from and is there enough of it and how do I make food for my children? How do I teach at home? All of these questions are coming up as very important. And it's why I, I really feel like we might have a silver lining for this pandemic. Because we need to be aware of the environment and what we have done to it. And food is kind of that connector to the environment. It was for me. It's really what uh, made me understand how precious the environment was and how I had to take care of it because it fed me. My relationship to food as a child was as kind of a tool against my parents. <laughs> I figured, like, they, they wanted me to eat things as a kid, like kidneys and liver, and they just tasted so revolting. And I 
kind of my first civil disobedience was around food. I would just sit at the table and the lights would go out. My parents would go to bed and they, they would not <laughs> let me leave the table until I finished it. And then I would chew it up in my mouth and go and spit it in the bathroom. <laughs> so I had a really weird relationship to food for a long time. Like, how did, you, how did that occur to you growing up? You know, I did a lot of those same things, but I was a little girl in the 50s, and we had to come to the table. And my mother always reminded us that we had to eat everything on the plate. There wasn't any choice. Think about the poor people in India, she would say. You have to sit here until you're finished. And very sadly, she wasn't a good cook. (laughs) That was the problem. Amazing. Uh, uh, But fortunately, we had a big victory garden. And my mother really preserved food Hmm. out of the garden for the winter months. Things like applesauce and vegetables that she stored. She made tomato sauce. Not great, but she made that. And uh, rhubarb, compote. Oh, my God, I love rhubarb. Uh, But it was that kind of frozen food of the 50s that she was so grateful to have because she was feeding four girls and her husband. It wasn't until I was 19 and I went to France (laughs) and the whole beauty of food opened up. I ate a wild strawberry and that was it. Do you remember that day? I remember that meal exactly Mm. because I'd never seen those little berries before ever and I just ate them. You had a little sugar and if you wanted some creme fraiche on the side and I asked where I was going to get them and they said well you have to go up to the hillside. You have to hunt for them. They don't get planted and you pick them. You have to go. And so that was a big revelation to me. And when they were finished that year, they were over. It was only the food in the market from that moment in time. September, October, November, December. And it was only really food that was grown in and around Paris. It came to that big marketplace, Leal, and was distributed to all the little grocery stores and farmer's markets. There weren't any big grocery stores then. And there was rarely any food from any other part of France. And people were content. Completely. <laughs> but, but that contentment, I mean, for us, well, just a funny story about <laughs> peas. So I grew up in England in the 70s, and in the 70s, it was probably like the 50s in the U.S., so we were still, they were still rationing in the 70s, and I would go to people's houses, and they would say, Jared, during the war, we had no food, and you have to finish everything on your plate. Generally, the thing that I couldn't finish was mushy peas. It was just so putrid to me to this day. I thought you were going to say spam. (laughs) Spam, I mean, all that other stuff, yeah, was bad, but somehow the peas, and then I remember... Like, because you were just saying it, 
for me, like the revelation was frozen peas. <gasps> they are. F- I thought frozen peas were fresh because the comparison was to like the canned peas. Exactly. And then, exactly. And then my revelation, your strawberry moment was, I lived in an agricultural area um, of East Anglia, and one year they planted peas around the fields that I'd bike in. And I remember sitting and opening the pea pod with my hands and eating them raw and being like, wow, these are even better than the frozen ones. This is where the pea comes from. It was like, wow. I have watched this transformation happen to people that once they feel empowered and once they get connected with real foods, beautiful, alive food, ripe food, they say, I want that. You know, whether it's a tomato or a cherry or, you know, really kale, you know, anything that is planted from seed, that they watch that thing happen, the magic of nature, and they see it grow up, and then they pick it, and then they they cook it and it's like a complete transformational experience talking of uh, transformational experiences wasn't the whole edible schoolyard project kind of inspired by Catherine Sneed's work with prisoners at the uh, garden project in San Bruno she called me and asked me if I would buy fruits and vegetables for Chez Panisse. If she grew them to our specification. She had seven acres of land down there in San Bruno. And I said, of course, of course I will. And then she said, well, you have to come and meet my students. And I said, Catherine, just send it. I don't think I can come to the jail. And she said, you must. And I was so embarrassed that I didn't want to go that I went. And she was right. I did need to go and went out into this garden with about 20 young guys and they were showing me around these sunflowers that they had planted and all these incredible vegetables. And um, Catherine said, tell Alice about uh, your experience here. And one kid raises his hand and he said, um, I shouldn't really be telling you. It's my first day in the garden. But it's the best day of my life. And I just said, oh my God, it's transformational. And that was at that moment that I said, if it can happen in a, in a jail, it can happen in a school. And that is really what but really inspired me to start the Edible Schoolyard Project. So you went from that incredible project in San Bruno with Catherine and, and then how, how did it evolve? And, and it's such a, when I got to visit the Edible, Edible Schoolyard, I just remember one of the coolest things was not only just how beautiful the site was, but also that the parents of the kids were there too, eating lunch. Right. The principal, Neil Smith, asked me to come and see him and talk about what I could do. 
Well, I took one look at, <laughs> at the big space of that school that was built in 1921, most of it asphalt. And I said, Neil, I have a big idea for you. <laughs> and Montessori teacher that I was, I do believe that we learn best by doing, learning by doing. So I imagined that we could dig up all that asphalt and we could plant a garden, not for teaching gardening, per se, but for teaching math, for teaching science, for e even teaching art, I mean, or music in the garden. And then I said, oh, we could take this portable building and turn it into a kitchen classroom. Again, not for teaching cooking, but for teaching about the culture of the, the world through food. So if you were studying the geography of the Middle East, you might be eating hummus, you might be making it, or a tabbouleh salad, or a pita bread. And uh, then I said, look at this big area, Neil. We could build a cafeteria big enough that all the students could sit down and eat together and we could serve them a free organic school lunch. And he said, thanks, Alice, I'll get back to you. And, and then what happened? And then, Six wait, wait. months later, he yeah. did. Okay. And we met and I, he said, well, I think we could begin the garden. And I said, Neil, it's all or nothing, all or nothing. And he said, Alice, we're going to frighten people if you talk about a free organic school lunch. Uh, let's be, let that be our little secret. We'll do the garden, the kitchen classroom. And I said, okay, let's begin with the garden. It's amazing how what you stand for frightened some people. <laughs> Just the idea that he was probably right that somehow starting with a free organic school lunch would frighten people. But but do you find that you that your concepts continue to frighten? I mean, you you came in and kind of changed the way we think about food, and that's frightening. Funny you should ask that question because I really believe that we need to talk about that very big picture. And even if you can't make it happen, you need to have the hope that you can. And I think the hope of that free organic regenerative school lunch is just been deeply planted at the Edible Schoolyard Project and now throughout the whole network, which is 7,000 strong across around Incredible. the world. Wow. But it's, it's about a set of values that you're trying to communicate. It's about stewardship of the land. It's about nourishment. It's about community. And... We live in a fast food culture 
that has absolutely gone against all of our human values and has taught us that that it's okay to eat in our car and it doesn't matter where our food comes from. Everything should be fast, cheap, and easy and available 24-7. And it should be uniform. And, and these ideas and many more have just permeated our world. And, and people are very disconnected. And I feel lonely uh, because we aren't eating together anymore. Mm. Our families are very disconnected. One in two people is divorced. We never talk about that. I remember early on at the Edible Schoolyard, these were teenagers. And some of the kids had never been out in the garden <laughs> at all. And they were afraid of getting their shoes dirty and wanted special boots and, and didn't want to put their hands in the soil. But by the end of the year, they never even put those boots on. <laughs> and it's like memories that I have of childhood, of rolling down a grass hillside <laughs> with my father and we'd just see who got there first. <laughs> but it was knowing all the flowers because my mother was so interested in everything that was growing and I learned the names of, of everything that was in New Jersey around in our neighborhood. And when you feel connected in that way, you see a big picture of nature. You watch the seasons change. And I watch how the food changes during the course of the year. And I feel very, very comforted by the return of my persimmon tree in the fall. <laughs> you know, these things happen. It's like miracle. <laughs> yes, that's my persimmon. It's not ripe yet. Alice has amazing persimmon. It, it looks like a, a Chinese watercolor of a persimmon so when you think about isolation and and food and that's it's a really profound thought just about how how we are connected by food but also how disconnected we are right now you've you've been the founder and and kind of engine of Shea Penny's and, and how is it feeling during COVID? Like, how, how have you coped with this time of great upheaval and change? Well, I just know that we have to take care of all of our farmers and our ranchers. We have to preserve the farm-to-table movement. And I'm so pleased that so many farmers' markets are open and social distancing so that people can continue to support those people. And they need our help right now because they've relied on the restaurants so heavily. And it's made me think about a big idea that I've had for a long time, but all of a sudden, it's really come into focus. 
that there is huge buying power in the, in the public school system. Just imagine if every campus of the University of California decided to purchase its food from local, organic, regenerative people directly, no middleman taking the money, directly from that person, which is what we did 40 or 50 years ago. And it's why we were able to build a network of suppliers so quickly, because we took everything they had and we paid them the real cost of the food so that they could pay their farm workers a real wage. And so that idea could really be powerful in the state of California. An engine for local economy, an engine for regenerative ag that pulls the carbon down and addresses climate. What could be better? <laughs> and producing food that is deeply nourishing for students. And do you find that folks come out of the woodwork in opposition? I mean, the big corporations that make a lot of money from serving our kids pretty terrible food. I haven't realized until recently that just the words organic or regenerative are kind of fighting words for some people. They feel like offended. Well, it, it's because of that fast food indoctrination. We think food should be cheap. First of all, it has never, ever been cheap. It's always been precious. People were willing to spend more on food than anything else. The idea that it has to be done quickly. I do want to be able sometimes to eat breakfast quickly, but I know how to do it because I know how to cook. I know how to make a little egg for myself. I know how to make a tortilla on the stove. But we don't know how to feed ourselves affordably. And that's what we could teach in the course of school food. It could be incredibly diverse, too. I'm writing a cookbook right now that is about school food. And I'm relying very heavily on the Middle East and, and on Asia and uh, South America because... They have traditional foods that are incredibly nutritious. They have been in the past, not so much in this fast food world now because everything is being industrially produced, but they have in their past. And it's food that kids like immediately. It's like, it is like tortillas, polenta. Beans, spicy beans. I mean, pita bread. These are all wonderful foods for, for, for all of us. Yeah. And very, very affordable. I mean, I just think of, of when you have an expensive organic chicken, 
uh, you know, you have to use it wisely. A small portion of meat on a plate. Maybe you, you make two meals out of it in a chicken salad. Maybe you make a third meal with bones. And you make a tortilla soup. But if you don't know how to cook, and the fast food industry is counting on you not knowing, you're at their mercy. And also, we don't know about how the food is being produced in the fast food world. They'd like to keep that a secret. I mean, some of those uh, f- uh, feedlots have been exposed, but not enough of them. It's frightening to see how the industrial food system works and to have the public schools give the money to that system when they could give the same amount of money to the sustainable regenerative system needs to be presented and exposed. Because this book that I've written is buying all the food organic retail. And I can make lunches that fit into the USDA reimbursement. I mean, I mean that's amazing because it's literally <laughs> like a dollar a kid a day. I mean, so little. Yeah, very, very little. And yet you're right. If you buy gabanzo beans and polenta, it doesn't have to be expensive. And just think of how many tortillerias, organic ones, we're going to need to have around the state of California. No, it's incredible. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. What could happen because you have that reliable buyer at a very good price. And that's what the farmers need. Exactly what they need. They need to count on us. And that's what school-supported agriculture was all about. Say you ordered a box of food and you paid in advance, and every month you would get your, your box, and you didn't know what was in it. And how important that became for the whole farm community in this country and around the world, really. But if we were to think of schools, I call it school-supported agriculture. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the more you talk about food, one, the hungrier I get. But mainly, (laughs) the mainly thing that happens is I just realize what a metaphor it is for our entire relationship with each other, with the planet, these kind of bizarre premises that we have about progress, meaning things go faster, that portions are bigger if you're richer, all, all these things, and our relationship mainly to the environment, to each other. I mean, we, somehow the process of eating feels now that it's just become utilitarian, it's almost okay. like you could get an IV drip or a pill or... <laughs> Exactly. Oh, that's being developed, of course. (laughs) And what you're saying is we're losing ourselves. Yeah. And we're isolating ourselves and we're... Think about the joy of food. I always say that this is a delicious revolution Mm. because it is about fine-tuning your senses, 
food is about touch and smell and visual, and it's even about listening. It's about when you're pounding and chopping and peeling, and it's, it's a sensorial awakening. And Montessori talked about that a lot when she spoke about her pedagogy in the slums of Naples and in India a um, hundred years ago or so. And she said that she developed uh, her techniques of teaching because this, the, as students, the children were sensorily deprived. Well, I think that our children are sensorily deprived too. Many because of poverty and hunger, but all of them from a fast food indoctrination. And I mean, it begins early with kids. It's in the schools, it's in the sports, it's on television that they watch, it's everywhere. And they, they, they don't have a chance unless they go to a school that really cares and has the time and the attention to engage them in this other way. And it's what happened at Chez Panisse. The farmer came into the kitchen and he brought his food and he talked about it to us. And we said, well, we can't use that like that. It's got to be bigger like that. And he said, I can grow it like that but it's not grown to its full potential of taste. Let me bring you one that's big and one that's small. Let's taste it. That kind of experience with him just changed the way that we purchased food from him. We took everything he brought, and he took all of the scraps back to his farm, and he's about an hour away. We made a hard and fast rule to eat only seasonally. Now, a lot of people would <laughs> be sort of horrified by that fact that you couldn't get your avocado sandwich <laughs> um, every day of the year. You say that, and I kind of laugh, and then I think, there are a lot of people who probably would be horrified that they couldn't get their avocado that is, that toast is every day. That is exactly right. And, but we, part of the indoctrination is to expect now that everything's available to your point 24-7 and 365 days a year. doesn't yeah. matter where it comes from. doesn't matter what, you know, that it came from Chile or came from Santa Barbara. It's, no one really cares. <laughs> it's all just exactly. there for them. So getting people dialing it back is almost hard, it is harder than if it had never existed. Well, the other, th the, th the, the magic thing about this idea is that we've been used to eating second-rate fruits and vegetables all year long. So when I bring a bowl of Kishu mandarins to the table in February when I'm speaking at a school, and people start eating those. They say, what is this? Where did it come from? 
they have that Fres de Bois moment. Mm. And I just love doing that. I've loved doing that always at the restaurant. It's like a magic trick. It is. And they always want more. And they ask, when is Masamoto's peaches coming? You know, when's Bob Canard's, you know, uh, nettles coming for the nettle pizza? Can you imagine that we're making pizzas at Chez Panisse out of wild nettles? And they are, in fact, incredibly nutritious. And if they're sautéed with garlic and olive oil and put on the top of the pizza, it's something divine. In England, the nettles, as you may know, are stinging. That's so they are here, too. Which makes it... I always used to run with shorts <laughs> through nettles and get... It's hives. Like a, hives. And so when I first had nettle soup, as a kid, I was just so proud that I was eating the nettles. <laughs> they were finally getting yeah, stung the, by me. Know, that's why people order the pizza at the restaurant. Same reason. It's amazing. But that's one of the most nutritious foods. and Because it's, it's got a lot of sting in it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. You, you have a very gentle demeanor, but you also have a you sting. You're able to get <laughs> stuff done, Alice. Like, you've kind of become a revolutionary. Well, I'm a slow food res- revolutionary in that I want to win people over. I want to seduce them, if you will, with a beautiful pomegranate like the one here on the table, to break it open, to have people surprised by that, and asking me questions, and, and wanting more. And that's, that's a very different way of, of getting people to really hear you, to come to offer people things. What is the process by which anyone listening to you now can be have a different relationship with food? One where it is delicious, where they are opening up their senses. What, what does that journey look like for people who haven't begun it? I think it definitely begins out in nature. I mean, even taking a walk out in nature is a big first step. I think absolutely going to a farmer's market can be a revelatory experience, just to take a look, even if you're not buying. You're just looking at the way the food is presented. It's something about the community of it, and that's, the, that's part of the farmer's market too. I go every week on a Saturday when it's happening, and I meet my friends there. So it's about community as well. I always say the best thing to do is to have a friend. Let's say every week one friend buys the food from the farmer's market, whatever seems right for a dinner. Then invite your friends over to have dinner, and you all decide on what you're going to cook, and you cook it together. 
and you all sit down and eat it. I started in earnest about 25 years ago, and it turned us all into pretty good cooks, and we still do it. Gathering is a way to really educate yourself and your friends, because you could take a cookbook, a great cookbook from someone, and decide you're going to all do dishes out of it. So that sense of family and ritual and community and connection, I mean, the thing that brings it all together is food. And mm-hmm. so that, that's what we're losing through Big fast time. food. Big and time. I think we often focus on what we've gained, which is, to your point, convenience and uniformity. And to me, they don't <laughs> sound like big gains, but they're real. And people have been convinced that somehow they're real. But <laughs> I think in this time of COVID, where we are isolated, that somehow that aspect of coming together around food, there's a silver lining of COVID. I know it is. I really feel like it is. And I immediately dug up my front yard that had flowers in it, and I turned it into a victory garden. I saw that. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Uh, Because for a moment, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to have lettuce. So I planted a lot of lettuce out in the front, first thing, first thing. And then my neighbors across the street told me that they planted a victory garden in their backyard. And somebody left me a note from around the corner and said that they were going to dig up their front lawn. So it's contagious, this, a little bit. What a great thing to be (laughs) contagious. But it's the community gardens that are so valuable for people. I mean, that's something in England and in Italy, I know everybody had an allotment after the war. And so they were given a piece of land. Uh, That's something we need to do in this state. We need to give people land that they can use and, um, and grow food for themselves. I always think about the streets of Seville lined with bitter oranges. And uh, what makes better champ? Marmalade. I've never been to Seville, but in Sacramento, (laughs) tell us you're organizing an event, hopefully for next year, where we bring this conversation back to our country. Yes. We dreamed of a table a mile long or so from the capital to the river. And what if we invited the farmers and the teachers to sit at that table? We could have these cooks from all around the world to come and cook a lunch for the teachers and the farmers. And the city of Sacramento is very excited about this. But we wanted to also really make it kind of a bigger demonstration, a sort of terra madre, a demonstration about climate. And, of course, we wanted to leave something. And what could be better? Maybe we plant thousands of trees at the University of California, Davis fruit trees. If we are thousands of people, maybe we could organize that. You can organize anything, Alice. (laughs) And I'm already like 
waiting to be at that table. <laughs> what, how can people get engaged if they, if they want to, if they have ideas or funding suggestions of how to make this a reality a year from now? Who should they contact? I'm going to say, write to me at Shapenis. Perfect. Thank you so much for everything that you do, but mainly just for your spirit that is so captivating and, and makes me and so many people want to take action to help oh, transform thank us. Thank you, Jared. A huge thank you to Alice Waters for inviting us into her magical garden and for talking with us today. Alice believes that the act of eating is inherently political, and she's now working on a manifesto. At the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley is a sign that reads, The Philosophy of Alice Waters, and underneath are the following eight principles. One, eat seasonally. Two, eat locally and sustainably. Three, plant a garden. Four, conserve, compost and recycle. Five, Cook simply, engaging all your senses. Six, set the table with care and respect. Seven, eat together. And eight, food is precious. By following these eight principles, we can rebuild our relationships with each other, with the planet, and re-engage our own numbed senses. In the process, we will become healthier, have more joy in our lives, and be able to establish soils capable of absorbing carbon, all while helping family farmers thrive. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey, and if you have time and are so inclined, please write us an Apple podcast review. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, see how your mood improves when you eat something truly delicious. Thank you.